All right, hello, church. It's good to be back. Uh, Adam kind of gave me a little bit of an introduction, but my name is Barrett Moore. For those of you who already know me, I am, uh, I'm his assistant here. I'm also the worship admin for our worship team. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, after service, if you wanna come down, uh, you can ask any questions. I'd love to pray for you. Uh, I'd love to get to know you after the service. Um, and before we start today, I think I'd just like to pray because uh, our parable today is a little bit difficult. Uh, it's gonna ask, uh, it's gonna make us think a lot of questions. So if we could start today, just praying God would give us ears to hear, give us hearts that would be receptive to his word. If you would pray with me. Dear Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for your people and your church here in Baldwin. We just pray that you would give us ears to hear your word, hearts that would be receptive to what you have to tell us today, that we could live and live out our purpose the way that you have planned for us and, and as close to your will as possible, Father. So we just pray in your holy name that you would do all these things this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so how are, we, how are we feeling this morning? Like raise our hands if we're, are we at least somewhat, we've woken up a little bit? Yes, no, yes, eh, eh. Okay, there we go. I don't know who that was. Thank you so much. <laughs> all right, well then I have a question for you. Um, and if I can find it, it's somewhere in here. I hit a dollar. I have a dollar. It's on my stand. Okay. This dollar, today's sermon is about money. And out of my abundant generosity, I'm going to give this dollar to one of you. Ooh. So here's the question. You get this dollar if, and if I talked to you in the lobby earlier, you're disqualified, okay? You don't get to answer. If you can name what I had for breakfast this morning. Anybody who knows me. Red Bull, who did it? Who was it? There we go, Steve, all right. So Steve, I will give you this dollar earlier. And no, I would never do something crazy like that. That'd be dumb, but. So that's, that's how I started off my morning. And speaking of Steve, that's a great segue. That was not planned. Speaking of Steve, last week, he taught on the prodigal son. And the prodigal son is kind of this great story of a son who asked his father for his inheritance early. Then he goes on and squanders it. Uh, he comes back to his father after the fact because he ends up looking at pig food at kind of the lowest point that he gets to. He looks at pig food and he's like, that looks appetizing. Probably not a great sign. I'm gonna go back to my father and hopefully he can, at least he'll take me in as a servant. He'll give me a job. At least I'll have a place to live. So that's kind of the story of the prodigal son, this great story of God's forgiveness and his grace and his love and his mercy, both grace and mercy because the son gets what he does not deserve and he doesn't get the punishment that he does deserve. And then the week before that, it's important to know that Steve's parable started with to illustrate the point further. Those are the first few words. And that's because the week before, Adam taught on the parable of the lost sheep, which both the prodigal son and the lost sheep are very, very famous parables. The lost sheep is the uh, shepherd leaving the 99 to go after the one. That's the prodigal, uh, I mean, and then it follows with the prodigal. So in the back of your head today, as we go through this sermon, I just want you to kind of think, like I said, it has a lot to do with money, our sermon today. I just want you in the back of your head, kind of think, how is that tied to the prodigal son and how is it tied to the lost sheep? How is what we're going to hear today? Because Jesus follows, uh, he follows those two with this. So kind of think in the back of your head, how, how are those two connected? So we're going to start today in Luke 16. If you want to open your Bible, it'll be about a little bit over halfway 
Luke is the third gospel, third book of the New Testament. And if you have the Bible app, you can go ahead and open that up as well. So we're going to be in Luke 16 today, starting in chapter 9 and verse 1. Jesus told this story to his disciples. There was a certain rich man who had a manager handling his affairs. One day, a report came that the manager was wasting his employer's money. So the employer called him in and said, What's this I hear about you? Get your report in order because you are going to be fired. The manager thought to himself, Now what? My boss has fired me. I don't have the strength to dig ditches. And I'm too proud to beg. So besides the fact that that's kind of just bad business practice, probably don't fire a financial dude and then tell him to go handle your finances, probably not a great idea to start with, but that's kind of the setting that Jesus gives us for our parable this morning. There are two main characters. We have the manager and the master, or as the, in some, it calls it the master. In this translation, he's called the boss. But we have these two characters, the manager and the master. And apparently, the manager has been doing a pretty bad job of handling the master's money. It's also important to understand the cultural context of this, because the manager would have lived on the master's land. He would have handled all the money, obviously. He also, most likely, a lot of his possessions would be owned by the master. A lot of his uh, his food, everything was provided for him living on this land. It was kind of almost like indentured servitude. And with that context... Him getting the kind of get your report together, you're fired. Him getting that message it means a lot more than it would maybe mean to us getting fired. Getting fired kind of always stinks. But in this context, he's losing a lot more. He has a lot more to lose. So then we think, okay, well, how is the parable going to continue? Does he, you know, maybe go back to the master, apologize, try to reconcile? Does he admit where he was wrong? Does he, does he go to the report and make everything work and tell the truth? Well, let's, let's find out. Verse 4, ah, I know how to ensure that I'll have plenty of friends who will give me a home when I'm fired. All right, so pretty bad start. Probably not the greatest route to go. Just immediately, okay, I've committed a lot of fraud. I got caught committing fraud. I will fix that by committing more fraud. That's his, that's his first go-to. Probably not a great step. But let's, let's see, maybe he turns it around. So he invited each person who had money to his employer to come and discuss the situation. He asked the first one, how much do you owe him? So, you know, that's okay. He's, he's kind of getting things in order. That's pretty good. The man replied, I owe him 800 gallons of olive oil. So the manager told him, take the bill and quickly change it to 400 gallons. What on earth is this guy thinking? He goes on, okay, next guy. He asked the next man, I owe him 1,000 bushels of wheat, was the reply. Here the manager said, take the bill and change it to 800. Apparently he didn't like the second guy as much as the first guy because the second guy only got a 20% discount. But you kind of get the sense that he's going around to everybody who owes his master money and doing this. So Jesus only gives two examples, but the scripture kind of leads you to believe he's doing this to every person that owes his master money, which would account for a huge sum of money that this master is losing. I mean, you think just in the first two guys, he's lost 400 gallons of olive oil and 200 bushels of wheat. That's just the first two guys. So you imagine that multiplied by everybody. This, this guy is losing a lot of money. And so why is the manager doing it? Well, like he said, I know how to ensure that I'll have plenty of friends who will give me a home when I'm fired. As I said, he would not only be losing his job, he'd be losing his home. He'd be losing a lot of his resources. He might not have food on the table anymore. A lot of his possessions were probably owned by his master. He's losing basically everything. And so he's, he's kind of telling all these people, hey, here's a discount. Um, 
I'm, I'm going to help you out. You don't have to pay as much. To the sound of hundreds of gallons of oil and hundreds of bushels of wheat. So how does the rich man react? That's a pretty good question because you would expect him to, I don't know, kill the guy, possibly. At the very least, he's bringing in the authorities. He's going to be very, very upset. So let's see, how does he react? The rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal. Pause for a second. Love that translation, by the way. The dishonest, dishonest little guy. The dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. And it is true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than are the children of the light. And then Jesus, I guess he makes it easy on me preaching on it, because then he says, well, here's the lesson. He just straight up says, here's the lesson. And that's actually kind of cool, because in a lot of Jesus' parables, he actually says elsewhere in Scripture, that part of the reason he uses parables is so that those with ears to hear, he says, those with ears to hear would understand his message, and those without ears to hear would not. So in some sense, it was actually a barrier for those people without ears to hear to not understand his message. And here he actually comes right out and says, here's a lesson. Here's my point of why I'm telling this story. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then when your possessions are gone, they will, become, they will welcome you to an eternal home. And that's the end of the parable. So I'm going to go ahead and speak for the room. When I say, what on earth is Jesus talking about? This, this parable is absolutely insane. He's telling us, okay, well, one, we're learning from this, like, lying, thieving manager. For some reason, the master's just kind of really cool with it, just pretty chill about the whole thing. Uh, just got probably thousands of dollars equivalent stolen from him. And he's just like, oh, well, at least you did a good job stealing from me. What does that mean? And then also, why does Jesus then at the end tell us that like, and my lesson is to buy friendship. What? What does any of this mean? I'm going to be really honest. Him saying, here's the lesson kind of just confuses me a little bit more because it doesn't clear up anything for me. If I'm being really honest, the first probably two days I was studying this passage, I, I, I had a really, really hard time grasping what is he trying to teach me? Because I think in the back of all of our heads, when we hear this parable for the first time, most of us probably react the same way of like, I assume Jesus isn't saying outright what he, he doesn't mean outright what he's saying. He's probably not telling us go steal from your boss. I'm sure Adam's happy about that. He's probably not telling you go steal from your boss. So maybe don't do that after church. He's probably not telling us, yes, buy friendship, but then why did he say it like that? So that's, really, there's, there's kind of a lot of questions about this today, and that's what we're going to hopefully answer. So firstly, maybe it wasn't actually stealing, right? That might be a question some of us have. Was it actually stealing? Maybe this is a cultural thing, or it's a historical thing that we just don't understand, and this was, in some convoluted way, this was okay. So to that, I have to say, technically, like at the absolute best, this was fraud, because the guy, I mean, he filled out his W-2. This was his job. He got hired by the guy, but also obviously not, not supposed to do this, not supposed to go giving random discounts to whoever he wants and losing his master a ton of money. So at the very best case scenario, it's fraud. And worst case scenario, it's theft. Jesus doesn't include any kind of money laundering or anything like that. He's not taking a cut for himself. He's just helping these people, and in his own reasoning, he's doing it so that he can have friends for once he loses his house. And I think that kind of starts to cue us into our next question. 
which is why wasn't the manager upset? I think a little bit of it has to do with that idea of what I kind of just said. It's He's not upset because the guy is shrewd. It doesn't necessarily say whether he excuses the theft. If the story kept going, maybe Jesus would have said, yeah, the manager, then he called the cops on him. Uh, he went to jail 10 to 20, I don't, whatever it is. But we also have to understand this is a parable. This isn't a story that Jesus is retelling. This isn't an actual event. So Jesus made the conscious choice. I'm going to end it right there. I'm going to end it with the master just be admiring the manager, just being impressed, and then I'm going to leave it there. You don't get to know his reaction. So that question, why would he do that? Well, the answer I'm not going to tell you right now. I'm going to leave you on a little bit of a cliffhanger. We're going to come back to that one. But as we continue, kind of think in the back of your head. A lot of this today, it's, it's a lot of kind of keeping stuff and trying to tie it together. So keep in the back of your head this one. Why would the master not be upset? Why would Jesus end the story there? Well, it's because he was shrewd and cunning, as I said. As verse 8 explained, it is true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than are the children of the light. That's our next verse. So the answer for why the master isn't mad is because the world is more shrewd dealing with itself. What does that mean? Well, theologian Klein Snodgrass puts it like this. The accusation is still painfully true. That the people of this age are wiser in their arena than the children of light are in theirs. Is it because with one eye on this age and one eye on the kingdom, a necessary split vision, we allow ourselves to be determined more by our age now than by the kingdom, by Christ's kingdom? Christians are dominated by the same concerns as the rest of society, but Jesus' teaching is intended to give us a different set of concerns. So the world likes the way of the world. The world is really good at dealing with the world because it's all playing by the same rules. The people of this world don't have any kind of higher calling saying you should do this instead. So if the world tells you lying and cheating is okay, then it's okay and you get to play by those rules. I think kind of what, what Snodgrass is getting at here is this idea that Christians, the reason why we're maybe not as good, and especially we shouldn't hope to be as good, it's not something we should desire, is because as Christians we have this necessary split vision. You must be focused on the kingdom to come, but also we do live in this world right now, and, and money is a very real, tangible thing in front of us, and the kingdom is not as, it, it's not something we can hold in our hands like money can, and so it's really easy for money to kind of take us off the kingdom like that. But the ways of the world work with the ways of the world. Christians, because the world is not our home, should have this tension. It should be this constant pull between what we know Jesus wants for us, what he's commanded for us, and what the world tells us is all right and okay. It's this constant tension, and we live in it. It doesn't really ever go away. You just, you live in that. And the passage doesn't tell us, as I said, whether the rich man respected the theft or whether or not he gave consequence to the manager. It only says that he admires him. So I like to imagine it like Disney's Robin Hood. Has anyone ever seen Disney's Robin Hood? The old animated one. Anybody? Yes, yes. Few? Okay. So that's like one of my favorite movies of all time. 
And there's the, oh, I love it so much. Because when I was a kid, I watched it like every single night. And so now it's just really nostalgic for me. But I love that movie so much. And there's this scene where Robin and Little John, they're both dressed up like these weird gypsy women. And they go to Prince John and they steal everything from his carriage. And there's this like famous scene where he takes Prince John's hand and kisses all his rings, but he's sucking the gems off it. And so then in the end, he smiles. He's got all these gems in his mouth and then they book it out. And as they're running away, they also take the, uh, the pin off the wheel. So the wheel of the cart falls off. And there's, again, like another kind of famous gag of Prince John in that movie. They start sucking on his thumb and crying for his mommy. And they're running away. He's sucking on his thumb. And then one of the guards just kind of waves goodbye to little John as he's running away. And to me, the master's kind of like that. It's kind of this weird, like, yeah, I just got robbed, but at least he was really cool doing it, right? I don't know. Like that was, he did a pretty good job robbing me. I don't know. You got to respect that. All right. And then uh, since not a ton of you had seen Robin Hood, apparently, have you maybe ever seen Infinity War, Avengers Infinity War? Okay, that I figured more, the first service did the same thing. I expected a lot more Infinity War. That's like the fourth best-selling movie of all time. Either way, there's this scene in Infinity War where Thanos, the like big baddie, he's got the Infinity Gauntlet, which in the movie means basically he can do whatever he wants. He can now like control time and space and souls, like it's crazy. And he's got this thing and he's fighting all the Avengers and he walks into this wooded area, just like backhands one of them, shoots a laser at another. I think he like puts one of them in a tree and then grows the tree around them. And there's this really epic scene where then Captain America runs up to Thanos and he just puts his hand on the infinity gauntlet and holds it up. And he's like, you see, I mean, he's, he's as hard as he can holding this thing up. And Thanos has this look where, I mean, it's almost like the weight of Thanos' hand is pushing down on Captain America. He's not even really giving effort. And Captain America's giving everything he has. He just watched all his friends die. And Thanos has this look of like respect and a little bit of confusion where it's like, why would you do that? And I think it's a lot like that as well. It's this like, obviously I don't like what you're doing because I just killed all your friends. Probably a good signal that I don't like you. But there's, with that, it's kind of like the master again. It's this like weird respect of at least you did it well. At least you got the gusto to do it. That kind of, I'm not happy with you. I obviously don't like what you're doing, but I respect it. But the question still does remain, why would Jesus make it so that the master doesn't get angry? That question from earlier I said I would answer. Well, in Robin Hood, the guard that waves, he does eventually chase them. And Thanos does eventually like just punch Captain America to the ground. They're it, like, they have that moment and then they do the thing you expect them to do. But Jesus just leaves the story right there. So why wasn't the master angry? I lied to you. I'm leaving you on a cliffhanger again. I'm sorry. That's the, sec- I pro- the third time I promise I'm going to answer it. But the third big question, the third big question, is what did Jesus mean when he says that we should use our worldly resources to make friends? Is he saying that we can buy people into wanting to be our friends? Because as I said, I think a lot of us understand that's probably not what he's saying. Because we all innately understand you can't do that. I can't give someone enough money that they now love me. You can make them pretend they love you for sure, but you can't get actual friendship out of just paying somebody. 
So I think to really get that answer, we, we continue reading on into verse 10 and 12. If you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. And that's already really telling of where Jesus is going to kind of take this because he's saying money and the things of this world and even the things we enjoy, the good things that God has blessed us with. All of those things are the little things. They aren't the important thing. And I, I want to stop right there and just say, has Jesus even once so far insinuated that wealth is inherently bad? He said nothing at all so far that wealth in itself is a bad thing. It's just that it's the little thing. It's not the most important thing, and there's a danger with it. But wealth in itself is not a bad thing. Jesus at no point has said that. He continues on, if we are dishonest in little things, will we not be honest with greater responsibilities? So what are the greater responsibilities? What are the large things that we're meant to be faithful with? Well, verse 11 says this, And if you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? And if you are not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? So there it is. In these last two verses, Jesus makes two really piercing and pertinent statements. One, that the larger things, the greater responsibility that he's talking about in these kind of if-then statements that you see on the screen a lot of if you do this, then this. If this, then this. He makes these two large statements and it's that the, the greater responsibility is our responsibility to heaven. It's our responsibility to the kingdom of God. That is the greater thing. And everything on earth, the money, your, even your family, even the good things that are a blessing to you, those, those are the lesser thing to the kingdom of God. And then two, Jesus, Jesus brings up being faithful with other people's things. And that's going to be really important for the rest of our time here today. Because that's kind of a double whammy. It answers our question from earlier and it gives us a huge lesson. That nothing you own is yours. Not your car, your money, the clothes on your back, your land, your children, your job even. None of it is yours. Even the things that we want to hold really, really tight. We want, to, we want to grasp onto as hard as we can. You can't take any of it with you. Even the things that we're like, I, I just put in a week of work for this paycheck, right? I did all that. God didn't. God wasn't the one that had to clean all the dishes. I did all that work. Even that, God gave you every single breath you took to accomplish that. It's all God's. Even the blessings, it's all God's. So I think Jesus stops the story saying that the master had to admire him because simply put, the lesson of the master is just that none of it is ours. And that at first you might not believe me, but I think the reason that Jesus uses the master is just very simply in this parable as a plot device. He's not meant to be, as one theologian calls it, he, he is an analogy for God. He is not an allegory for God. He's not, if, if you try to push, push the parable too tight to fit the mold of God and then the manager is us or the manager is Christ or the church or the disciples, it's going to fall apart. Because the, God obviously would not react like this. But the point of the master not reacting is because if our money is God's, and here's the, the first big point of today, if our money is God's, then the master is actually telling us to spend his resources. And that is why it's so important to understand that the money is not ours. Because if, if the money is mine, 
then I'm spending my money that I earned on my friends. And then it doesn't make sense. Then we get to, so I'm just buying friends. That doesn't make any sense. But if the money is God's, then I'm using the master's money for the master's purposes to save the master's people. It's not about me and my stuff and what I want to do with it anymore. It's about the master actually telling me, here are my resources, use it on my people. And so then we, we build relationships with it. And that is what Jesus means. You, you don't spend money so that now someone is a Christian. Obviously, we all know that can't work. But you use your resources, you use what God has given you, whether it's money or any other, any other worldly resource. You use all of them to build a relationship with somebody so that you can then, when you give them the gospel, they're going to listen. Because I think we all understand sidewalk preachers, a megaphone yelling at you that God hates A, B, or C, or a sign with a rainbow on it saying God hates A, B, or C, is not going to bring anybody to Christ. That's not going to make anybody want to have a relationship with him. If anything, it's only doing much, much more harm than good. So what Jesus is telling us here, the master himself is telling us here, is use my resources to bring my prodigal son back to me. Use my resources to bring my prodigal son back to me. That's why Jesus stops the story there. So finally, you're off the cliffhanger. But, and this is really the whole point for today. If we cannot be faithful with other people's things, with God's resources, with the blessings God has given us, why would he then trust us with his people? So that's kind of those four if-then statements. The big takeaway for that is that God wants us to be faithful with these little things because he wants to bless us with the bigger things. He, he wants us to live out for his purpose and for his kingdom to save his people, but he's by no means obligated to do so. I'm going to say that one more time. He's by no way obligated to do so. And I I don't necessarily think, and I mean, this is a matter of opinion. This is Barrett Moore speaking, but I don't necessarily think that this is tied to your salvation in any way. I think you can still be a Christian. It's not that this one sin of idolatry is going to separate you from the love of Christ. But God does not have to give you people to disciple. He does not have to give first free more people in these seats if we don't show that we're responsible with it. It's kind of like, I was very blessed that when I was 16, back in high school, uh, so like last week, you know, uh, back in high school, (laughs) I was very fortunate that my parents bought me my first car. And it was, I mean, well, the very first car was actually a hand-me-down from my grandparents. The, The first car I got, though, was a Dodge Stratus, and this thing was slick. Absolutely not. Worst car in the world. I hated it so much. I pretty much, I pretty much fought it every single day. The fuse blew. Every, I had it all through college. Oh my goodness, I hate this car. I could give another 30 minutes on, I need to stop talking. I'm going to go on forever. Hated this car. But I was very blessed to get that car from my parents because I obviously took the permit test. I passed all the, the tests. I did the parallel parking. I proved to my parents and to the U.S. government that I am now ready to drive a car out on the road by myself. And just like any loving parent, they're not going to just give you the key if you haven't shown that you're responsible enough to handle that privilege, right? 
if, if your parents just gave you a key at 16 years old, you had absolutely no ability to drive a car, and they said, yeah, just go figure it out. That's not a loving parent. It's exactly the same with God. God does not have to give first free or our leadership or any of us individually those people to bring to his kingdom if we don't show that we're responsible enough, if we aren't faithful with the little things, to be able to get those riches of heaven. And so when we look towards the riches of heaven, as Jesus said, it's this idea that like when I get to the pearly gates, I'm going to see Jesus Christ in his fullness and I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And then behind him, I want to see all my, I'm going to see a lot of guys and girls, all my friends behind him welcoming me in. That's what I want to see. Because the riches of heaven is an eternity with your Savior. So wouldn't it be really, really cool if all your buddies were there too? So you're using the master's resources for the master's purpose. So we're intended to be faithful with our money but it's also because we're meant to live with this kind of sense of impermanence. And there's a healthy sense of impermanence because you can definitely take this too far. Back to our sidewalk preacher with a megaphone that the world is going to end. There is the reality that, the, that Scripture tells us Christ could come back at any moment. There is that reality. But back to the tension. You live in the tension of the reality that Christ could come back at any moment. And also the reality of this world and the money that Jesus obviously understands because he talks about it all the time. A, a, a huge amount of his parables have something to do with money or finding treasure or, or the prodigal son even. If the prodigal son is a story about squandering wealth, then this parable is kind of a story about, okay, following that, here's what I actually want you to do with your wealth. Jesus talks about money all the time because there's this tension of the reality of heaven and the reality that we are in right now of I have to pay my bills and I have to put gas in my car. For many of you, you have to feed your families. You've got to pay the mortgage. There are, there are very real, very tangible, very in-your-face money is right here. And Jesus understands that. But we can't let this take our eyes off of heaven. And so you live in the tension and it never goes away. You, you, you have to live in that. A necessary split vision. As Colossians 3 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Because for right now, we live in this world and we operate by the ways of the world. But that does not mean we will be shrewd as the people of the world are shrewd. For me, it's easier to understand shrewd as cunning, just to say that. Cunning, kind of that conniving, clever that's what shrewd means. And then finally, no one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Now, if you're anything like me, the logical part of me kind of kicks in on that verse. Because the part of me who thinks like, I mean, obviously he's Jesus, so I'm listening to him. But... He's got to be kind of exaggerating right there, right? The, the logical part of me wants to fight that a little bit. Like, that's got to be hyperbole, right? Like, I can't, I can't love both of the masters. Because if you think about it, these are the two things that would be, in theory, the things that I love more than anything. Like, these are, I mean, they're the two things competing for my prime time attention. Like, th those two things I'm going to like a lot, Jesus. So 
why would I hate one because I love the other? Well, the way I see it, the way I see it is you can't serve two masters. You're going to hate one and love the other because we're not talking about earthly masters. If it's about what's your favorite color or what's your favorite TV show, if it's a battle between if you want to wear this shirt today or this shirt today, yeah, you can love both. You can, you can have two favorite games or two favorite sports teams, whatever it is. You can, you can have two masters in that sense. But if one is, sorry about that, if one is a, an earthly master and one is Jesus Christ, it doesn't work. Because Jesus tells us elsewhere in Scripture, I want you to love me so much that you hate your father and mother by comparison. And since Mother's Day was last week, I'm going to earn myself some brownie points if you guys could give me a second. But my mother raised me, she fed me, she protected me from everybody who ever wanted to hurt me, anything that wanted to hurt me. I, she made me in her womb. And I'm fairly certain she probably loves me more than anybody else on this earth. But even my very mother, I hate in comparison to how much I love Jesus Christ. And because I know my mother, I can guarantee she's very happy to hear me say that. And I would guarantee that she thinks the exact same thing of me. I love her more than anything. But the purposes of Jesus Christ are higher than that. And so you, you will love one and hate the other because it's either Jesus Christ is King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He is on the throne or he is not. He is either supreme over all or he isn't. So either you love him and hate everything else in comparison. He is it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, or you don't. There's no middle ground with Jesus. Jesus doesn't want lukewarm. He wants to be your king. As 1 Corinthians 7, 22 so beautifully puts it, and if you were free when the Lord called you, you are now a slave of Christ. God paid a high price for you, so don't be enslaved by the world. God paid a high price for you. He gave his son for us. He came down, lowered himself to man, and died for us. So I'm saying that he is my master now. And I can't give that position to anything else in the world. I have to love him and hate everything else. If anything else is above him, then I have said I hate Jesus Christ. If it's two things in the world, they can compete. Jesus Christ is not going to compete with his own creation. Can I get an amen? Jesus Christ is not going to compete with the thing that he made. Either he's supreme or he isn't. The reason you cannot love both, both masters is simply that. He is either king of kings, lord of lords, or something else is. He's either king of kings, lord of lords, or something else is. Something is your master. You, you don't get to be completely free where you are your own master. Something is your master, whether it's money or any other. It, it can be a good thing, any other thing, tangible or intangible. Your dreams, your ambitions, your job, your family. Something is your master, and anything can be your master. So no, you cannot love both. Anything that steals the supremacy of Christ is an idol, and that is your master. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money because you are going to be enslaved to God or to money. 
When God is in his rightful place, and this is, as we kind of close here, this is what I would want you to leave with today. If God is in his rightful place, if we understand who God is and what he has done for us, the, the creator of the universe, then it makes perfect sense that everything else should be so dramatically less than that. And for us to put him lower than something he made for us, for, for me to put something that he gave me above him is to say that I hate him because he is God. He is the creator. Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's, that's really what I want you to take today. I, I think that verse makes a lot more sense to me now than it did maybe even three days ago. For your treasure is there, your heart will be also. So that's why Jesus uses this story of a cunning, lying thief to teach us how important it is to make friends for the future. Not friends for this future, but friends for the future eternity after. Because you're going to have friends waiting for you in heaven to welcome you in. How beautiful is that? We get to walk hand in hand with our creator and live out his purpose for redemption and reconciliation with his world. That's incredible. We have no right to do that, but we do earn that privilege when we take care of the little things, when we take care of the blessings well that God has given us. When this community of believers here at First Free, when we handle our resources really, really well, whether that's money or any other worldly resource, and we handle it really, really well, God has promised he will bless us with the bigger things. That's, that's, that's how we can get more people and be able to disciple because God will bless us with that. He's promised to. Because when we rightly value the things of the world, we will also rightly value God on the throne. The things of this world are always secondary. So today, as you walk out these doors, I would just challenge you to spend your money a little bit differently. To understand that all of these blessings that God has given you, they're not yours to begin with. We are simply, when, when we give back to the church, simply giving back what God has given us. It, it's never ours to begin with. So if you call yourself a, a follower of Christ, follow him with your whole heart and surrender it all to him. Maybe today we kind of get back on track, surrender everything to him. Make sure there's no blind spot where something maybe has become a higher priority than Christ on the throne and his kingdom and his purpose. If you, if you aren't already a believer or if maybe you're a believer who maybe you've kind of slipped a little bit. Again, maybe today, maybe today's the day we turn it around. Jesus just says, repent and believe. That's all there is to it. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, thank you so much today for your scripture and for the wisdom you provide, Father. Thank you for preserving your word that we could study it today, how, how great it is that we get to hear the words of Luke and Paul and every other gospel writer or Paul's letters, everything, the way that you've preserved it that we could learn from you, Father. I just pray today that we would keep everything in perspective, that, that we would put you on the throne where you rightfully are and that we would understand everything you've given us is, is a blessing that we could bless others. You, you have blessed us so that we can lead your people back to you, that we could lead your prodigal son back to you, Father. Thank you so much 
for everything. In Jesus' name, amen.